If you have your Bibles, open them up to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We are finally concluding this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. And really, the theme of Galatians has been justification by faith alone. He's been arguing that throughout the book, and so this letter is very, very relevant for us today. But we find ourselves in chapter 6, and this is part 2, and I've entitled this section, Relationships. The Apostle Paul deals with various relationships that you and I have and how we're to respond to them. Now, you have to understand the Galatians were not doing good in their relationships to one another, so it's apropos that the Apostle Paul addresses this issue. Now, let me review what we looked at last week in terms of our relationships. First of all, I noted for you our relationship to a sinning believer. He mentioned this in verse 1, and he basically says that if you have a brother or sister that is caught in sin, a lifestyle of sin, or maybe some major egregious sin, we're to go to them in a spirit of love, a spirit of humility, and we're to restore them. And as Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you win your brother over, you have done a good thing. And so here he talks about our relationship to sinning believers. Secondly, I noted for you last week, our relationship to a burdened believer. In verses 2 and 3, he basically says that if a brother or sister is burdened by the weight of sin, and that's the context, or it could just be burdened by life in general, he says you and I are to help bear one another's burdens. And he says obviously you're not to have an attitude of pride because proud people don't want to bear other people's burdens or busy people don't want to bear other people's burdens. And so he says we're to do that as well. Thirdly, I noted for you last week, he speaks of our relationship to ourselves. And he really mentions four things. Number one, he says, in relation to yourself, don't make proud comparisons to other people, but rather compare yourself to God. Why? Because if you compare yourself to other people, you're always going to find people that are less than you. And you may be inclined not to help them because they're poor, they're needy. God is the benchmark. He's the one that we should evaluate our life and our ministry. Because if we see ourselves from God's perspective, what happens is we're more inclined to serve other people. Furthermore, he says in verse 5 that we're to take responsibility for our own burdens. What does he say there? He's saying that other people may bear my burdens, but listen, I have a responsibility. I can't expect everyone to do everything for me. And then he also mentions in relation to ourselves, we're not to make fleshly choices that have severe consequences. We're to think through the consequences of our choices because what we sow, we ultimately will reap. And then finally, he says in verse 9 that we're to do good and persevere in sowing to the Spirit because sometimes we grow weary in doing good. Sometimes the Christian life is hard. And he says, don't give up because if you keep sowing to the Spirit, you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. And so we looked at our relationship to ourselves. And then finally last week, I noted for you our relationship to our spiritual leaders. In verse 6, he basically says, share all good things with those who are teaching you the Word of God. He's referring there to supporting your leaders financially. Well, now for this morning, we want to look at the fifth relationship that you and I have, and that is relationship to a non-believer. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, so then, while we have opportunity... In other words, when God opens the door, he says, let us do good, and here it is, to all people. Now, the all people here are pagans, they're non-believers, because he's going to contrast it with Christians, because he says, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
He says, in relation to non-believers, we have a responsibility to do good to all men. Not only are we to look for opportunities, but we're also to take advantage of the opportunities that God brings our way. And as I said, we can't bear everybody's burden, and we can't meet the needs of all non-believers. But as God brings opportunities into your life and my life, we're also to look for opportunities. We are to reach out to non-believers. And I think the intent here is we want to reach them for Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Some of your translations say their time. It's not referring to clock time there. It's referring to opportunities because the days are evil. And so the Christian community is to be intentional about meeting the felt needs of non-believers, doing good to all people, and there's a variety of ways that we can do this in order to make them more pliable and more willing to hear the message of Jesus Christ. In fact, when I was in New Jersey, we would do several times a year what is called the gas buy-down. You'll notice the gas price here doesn't look that cheap, but in New Jersey, it was over $3. And so we offered it at a cheaper rate at the Pioneer gas station. And what we did is when people came in, and we'd have a long line of people, we would meet a felt need. I would say to them, and several of the workers would say, do you like the cheaper gas prices, compliments of Trinity Christian Chapel? We would offer a bottled water and a pretzel and church information. And people were taken back by this. In fact, one year, we had the news come out, and they put us on the evening news because they were taken back that a church would actually give back to the community. We got to share the gospel with so many people, and as you know, the Northeast is sort of hard in terms of God, but people would sometimes pull over and they'd ask for prayer. We would pray for them and we would minister to them. You see, what we were doing is doing good to all men, and it would cost us anywhere from $1,000 to $1,200, and people were stunned because churches typically take, they don't give back. But you see, that's doing good to all men. And what that does is it opens people up at least to hear the message, especially people that are hardened. We can do this on an individual basis, not just a corporate basis. When I was living in New Jersey, there was a house across the street and a lady lived there. She was a single lady. Her husband had left her. And one day I got in a conversation with her. I shared the gospel with her, and she listened. She said she was Presbyterian, but I don't think she was a born-again believer. And so we ended the conversation, and I think six months to a year later, she actually died in her backyard. She had a heart attack. And I thought, man, I'm so thankful that I shared the gospel with her. Well, her house sat there for two years. The bank didn't know what to do with it because she was a hoarder. It was very, very bad. Finally, this guy came in. He bought the house. He saw it as a diamond in the rough, and he brought his crew there, and they began to systematically gut the house and redo it and retool it. Well, one day I saw them over there, and I thought to myself, I need to share the gospel with all those men. And I know a way to a man's heart spiritually is through food. So what I did is I went over there, and I said, hey, guys, lunch is on me today. I'm going to buy you pizza. And so they were like, wow, that's great. So I went ahead and purchased some pizza. I brought it over, and I fed all of them. And in the process, I said, let me ask you all a question. Where are you going to go when you die? And it led to a conversation. Now, some of them weren't interested. Some of them were. But you know what? They were willing to listen. Why? Because I was willing to meet a felt need. You know, we could preach Jesus all day. But you know what? If we got somebody hungry here, somebody hurting, and we're willing to listen to them, we're willing to meet that need, we're doing good to all men, and they're going to be more inclined to listen to us. 
And so we've got to be intentional about reaching other people. But notice here, he says it's not just non-believers that we're to do good to. And by the way, Titus, he says, God's people must devote themselves to doing what is good. See, devoting means that we're intentional about it. That's why we use the ABC cards here. We want you to do something good for somebody. Why? Because it makes people think. And you know what? In our day and time, people don't want to listen because people have become hardened to the gospel because of the scandals in the church and because of the media. I like what Greg Ogden says, quote, we live in a post-Christian age in which the Western world is indifferent apathetic or hostile to the biblical God. It's becoming more and more like that in the West. We need other forms of witness to build bridges of contact to the unbelieving world. To be witnesses to the kingdom of God indeed means that we touch people's lives at the point of their felt needs. There are gaping wounds in people's lives that need the healing touch of Christ's compassion through the Christian community. End quote. He's right. We got to be intentional. But he says it's not just non believers. He said, especially the household of faith. Why would he say that? Well, listen, if we're charitable and we're gracious and we're meeting the needs of non believers, how much more in the family of God should we treat one another with charity and respect? How much more should we meet each other's needs here in the body of Christ? Now, this church does a good job of it, but you would be surprised there are a lot of churches that are very, very cold and they don't love one another. And Jesus said, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, that's a testimony. And so not only are we to reach non-believers, but we're to be good, to, especially to Christians. We're to exercise the one another's. We're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to serve one another. We're to rebuke one another. The Bible uses the one another's throughout Scripture. And you know what that does? That encourages us in our faith so that we can go back out into the world and be witnesses for Jesus Christ. I remember a guy in my church in New Jersey, he was diagnosed with a severe liver disease. And they said, if you don't get a liver transplant, you're going to die. And so finally, they located one in Florida. And he had to relocate for a year in Florida. And while he was there, they decided to get connected to a church. They obviously couldn't go very often because of what was going on with him. But he said this church, he didn't even know the church, they didn't know him well, he said this church during his time of waiting for this liver transplant and everything to happen, they ministered to this family. They prayed for them, they brought them food, and they didn't know him. And he said, Mike, that spoke volumes to me. He eventually got the transplant and God was able to heal him, and he's gone on to live a very fruitful life. But you see, that's what the body of Christ does. We are committed to one another. And so if we're willing to meet the felt needs of non-believers and do good to all men, how much more should we be that way towards one another? But you know what that requires? We can't be self-centered. If we're going to reach the world, if we're going to meet each other's needs, we got to be other-centered. You can't be a Sunday Christian only. God wants us to be intentional about reaching out to other people. And so I want to encourage you, find a need and meet it. Take those ABC cards, reach out, each one reach one. That's our mission here. We want to be intentional because, listen, God left us here primarily for evangelism. He didn't leave us primarily here for worship and fellowship. Those are good. God wants us to do those things. But God left us here primarily to reach the lost because, listen, if it came down to fellowship and worship, 
God would slay us and take us home because we're going to have perfect fellowship and worship up in heaven. He left us here because he wants us to reach all men and he wants us to serve one another within the body of Christ. And so Paul here is encouraging the Galatians, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Well, there's a sixth relationship that you and I have, and that is our relationship to false teachers. Now, remember, the whole book of Galatians has been about Paul exposing the Judaizers. The Judaizers were basically saying, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You must keep the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. You must keep the feasts and the festivals. And the danger of that Christianity is it's a false form of Christianity. Ostensibly, it appears Christian, but it's not. And so, throughout this book, particularly the four chapters, the Apostle Paul has marshaled doctrinal arguments, he's marshaled personal arguments to combat these false teachers. But what he's going to do is he closes out this letter, he's going to give one plea again to the Galatian Christians to remind them of these false teachers. He not only confronts their doctrine, but here he's going to confront their motivation. And look what he says here. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Now, this is somewhat of a cryptic verse because we don't know exactly why Paul wrote with large letters. Some people believe it was because of his eyesight. Many people believe it was to show the authenticity of this letter. Let me explain what happened in that day. Paul typically would speak to someone, a secretary, if you will, and they would write his letters for him. They called those people an amanuensis. Jeremiah did this in the book of Jeremiah. Well, Paul did this in 1 Corinthians. He did it in 2 Thessalonians and other letters as well. And so he would dictate the letter, and the amanuensis, or the secretary, would write down what he was saying. And it was no different in the book of Galatians. He spoke what he wanted the amanuensis to write down throughout Galatians. But now, in this last section, he's going to take the quill, he's going to take the pen, as it were, and he's going to write this last section himself. And he says, look, I'm writing now, it's me, Paul, and I'm using big letters, and the reason why is maybe his eyesight was bad, or he wanted to communicate to the Galatians that it was actually him, and it was an authentic letter. Because in that day, they had a lot of what is called pseudepigrapha writings. Pseudo means false. And what false teachers would do is they would write about their own particular false doctrine, and they would affix an apostle's name to it in order to give it credibility. And Paul is saying, no, this is coming from me. This is a genuine, authentic letter, and he's basically subtly here combating the false teachers, in this case, the Judaizers. And notice how he exposes their motive in verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 12, they make a good showing in the flesh. You know what he's talking about there? This is a unique Greek word. It's only used here. And what it is is basically it's a notch on their belt. It would be like the denomination that I was in Every year, we had to fill out this paperwork, and we had to put down how many baptisms we had that year, how many professions of faith, how many members are in the church. We had to fill out all these statistics. And you know what these Judaizers were doing? They were looking at circumcision as their statistic. They weren't concerned about the Galatians. They weren't concerned about their growth. See, Paul's getting to their motive, and he's saying, look, it's about pride. It's about ego. When they filled out the paperwork, they would say, yeah, I had 20 circumcisions this year. 
It wasn't about genuine conversion. And he says they're ultimately doing this because they're avoiding persecution. You see, they weren't preaching the true message of salvation by faith alone because when you preach that message, that message gets a reaction. Have you noticed people could talk about Islam, they could talk about Hinduism, they could talk about Buddhism, they could talk about all the schisms and spasms out there, but when you mention Jesus Christ and you mention that we are sinners and we can't save ourselves, people have a reaction. Why? Because the gospel and the cross is offensive. And you know what we've tried to do in the church today? We've taken away the offense. We've watered down the gospel. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Why? Because their motive was not only fleshly external success, but their motive was they didn't want to be persecuted. Paul was persecuted. And then he goes on in describing their motivation in verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. They're hypocritical. But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They wanted a notch on their belt. All they wanted to do was boast about, hey, you know how those Galatian Christians, we turned them away from Paul, and now we are successful because we have gotten them circumcised. It's like some pastors today. Some pastors, it's all about numbers. It's not about the people. I've talked to a lot of pastors. I've seen a lot of ministry where they're driven strictly by the numbers. They won't tell you that, but ultimately, that's what drives them. It's not about people in the sense of loving people. It's about building their church attendance. Why? Because it meets an egotistical need. And that's exactly what they were doing here. And then he says this in contrast to the false teachers in verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, look, I'm not going to boast in my converts I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ because it's ultimately the cross. The cross is not beautiful jewelry. The cross is a symbol of degradation. It is a symbol of the ignoble death of Jesus Christ. And he says, if I'm going to boast, it's not in my converts. I'm going to boast in the cross. Now listen carefully. False teachers, they don't boast in the cross. Typically, you will find with false teachers, they do not have a cross-centered ministry. They don't, Jesus Christ is not the focus. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And so we must be cross-centered because it's ultimately about the death of Jesus Christ. It's not about my ego. It's not about statistics. It's not about how large my church is. The issue is Jesus Christ and exalting him. And you see false teachers, especially some of these guys on TBN, these false prosperity teachers, if you listen to their ministries, and there are some who have studied their ministries, Hank Hanegraaff being one of them, he says one of the things that is conspicuously absent from their message is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, I boast in the cross, not my converts. And then he says this as he goes after their theology in verse 15, for neither circumcision... For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He says, look, in the new covenant, and even in the old covenant, God gave circumcision. Circumcision is not bad. It wasn't just for medical reasons. It was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. So it was good. But the problem was in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, circumcision was never intended to save you because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God says, circumcise your heart. Cut out the foreskin of your fallen nature. It's always been salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And he says, look, the issue now, it's not circumcision, it's not uncircumcision. The issue is, are you a new creation? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And how do you become a new creation in Christ? By trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He says that's the issue. You need to have internal surgery, not external surgery. And listen, here's another indication of false teachers. They preach a false gospel. They add works to the gospel message. That's a telltale sign. Some of them are very nice. Some of them are gracious people, and we want to treat them with love and respect. But listen, as I've said throughout this series, whenever you add to the gospel of salvation by faith alone, you are corrupting the gospel. It is no longer an organic gospel. You're adding preservatives. You're adding additives to it. And that's why he says in chapter 1, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be anathematized. Let him be judged. And then he says this as he closes out on false teachers in verse 16. And those who walk by this rule, what rule? That circumcision and uncircumcision is not the issue. It's salvation by faith alone. Those who embrace that rule, those who embrace that belief system, he says here's what they'll experience. Peace, they'll have peace with God and the peace of God, and God's mercy will be bestowed on them. And it's not just for the Galatians who were Gentiles, but he says upon the Israel of God. This is for Jew and Gentile. And so a person who's never embraced Jesus Christ, as religious as they are, and listen, there are a lot of religious people. You can be religious and not make it to heaven because it comes down to, do you got the gospel right? And is it not just an intellectual ascent, but have you personally accepted Jesus Christ? And so Paul talks about our relationship to false teachers. And what does he say about them in summary? He says this, he says, they are liars who preach a false gospel. They are driven by pride and ego. They are driven by outward success. They are hypocrites. They are people pleasers because they don't want to be offensive by preaching the cross. And they teach a work salvation. If you really want to read an expose on them, go to Jude and 2 Peter. They basically debunk false teachers and they give other characteristics of them. And so you and I are going to deal with false teachers in our culture. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 says... Don't be surprised when you see a bevy of false teachers, and the Spirit says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that in the latter days, we're going to see a surge of false teachers, and we see them today. I just read about two of them this week, false teachers. It's clear in their message that they're not preaching the truth, and again, I remind you, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear Christian. They look Christian. But when you get down to their message, it is a gospel of greed. Now, again, not everyone who disagrees with you is a false teacher, but if they attack the core doctrines of the faith, that is one of the indications. But listen, you got to read the fine print because Mormons, ostensibly, they look Christian when they knock at your door, when you look at the commercials. You think, man, what's wrong with the LDS church? But when you get beneath the surface and read the fine print, you realize that there are false teachers. In fact, I was reading an article yesterday about a community in Minnesota. I guess it was a housing development. Somebody picked up the phone, and they called the authorities, and they said, hey, there is a gentleman outside holding a pillow, and it was freezing weather, and they said, we're concerned because he hasn't moved, and he's going to freeze to death if he hasn't already. And here is what they saw out there. It was Mike Lindell, but guess what? It wasn't really him. It was a poster board that looked so genuine and so real, they thought it was a real person holding a pillow when, in fact, it was a cardboard imitation. 
And you know, that's what Jesus said. He says in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but he says, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. He said, you will know them by their what? Fruit. In fact, this was recently on Christian News. You'll notice this slide right here. This is where we're going in our culture. It says, welcome to the first annual Christian Witches Convention. This is Monday through Sunday, Salem, Massachusetts, Reverend Valerie Love, Christian witch. She grew up in Pentecostalism. This is the first one going on. Now, you see what's happening here is a lot of this, we're mixing paganism with a lot of this stuff. And so Paul says here, we got to be careful of the false teachers as he writes this final epilogue. What he's doing is he's warning the Galatians because he's very impassioned that they don't get sucked into the error of the false teachers. Listen to what Romans chapter 16 says about these false teachers. It says we're to identify them and avoid them. He says in verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye, in other words, be discerning on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. In other words, if it goes against the truth of God's word and what you have learned, he says basically avoid it. He says, turn away from them. Don't listen to them. Don't sit under their teaching. Be very discerning, especially if you're a new Christian, you're not grounded in your faith. He says, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And listen, that's why it's so critical you and I know the truth. That's why you're well taught here. That's why we go through the Bible verse by verse. But listen, this isn't enough. You need to study on your own. You need to meditate on the Word of God and go beyond the daily bread. The daily bread is good, and if that's all you're doing, it's better than nothing. But I want to encourage you, go beyond the milk of the Word. You want to dig into the truths of Scripture. Why? Because you got to know the truth in order to be able to identify error. And so Paul here talks about our relationship to false teachers. Well, there's a seventh relationship that you and I have, and that is our relationship to the world system. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what he says here, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, the world here, he's not talking about people. We got to reach people. He's not talking about God's creation. We can enjoy God's creation. What he's talking about here is the world system. The world system is basically the ideologies of our age, the philosophies of our age, the beliefs of our age, the self-centeredness of our age. The world system is a demonic system that is on a crash collision with God's kingdom. It is the anti-God, satanic system that opposes God. And you know what 1 John 5 says, that Satan is the ruler of this world. It says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. What that means is Satan is the ruler of this age, and all you got to do is look at the media. All you got to do is look at the values that we're espousing today. I mean, today, we can't even figure out what gender we are. What's going on with the confusion? You see, this is the system in which you and I live. Paul, uh, John talks about it in 1 John chapter 2. He says, in speaking of the world system, it's defined by three things. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three things that drive the world system. Lust, materialism, which is the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, ego. 
That's what drives our culture. And what does God say? He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then he says this, and the world and its lusts are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In other words, the world system is ephemeral. It's not going to last long. It's temporary. That's why Jesus said, store your treasure up in heaven. And you see, we got to be careful as Christians because I think what's going on in the culture today is we're not crucifying ourselves to the world like Paul said here. He says, look, I'm dead to the world. God delivered me out of the world. He sends me back into the world to reach the world. I'm to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm going to love people, but I'm not to take on the philosophies and the values of this age. And I'm afraid what's happened is the church has become so worldly, not only in our church services, but normal Christians have become so worldly that our lives are indistinguishable from the non-Christian. And this is why some non-believers are not interested in our Christianity because they see the hypocrisy. In fact, that French philosopher said this, show me your redeemed life and I'll be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. In fact, one person gave a statistic about this in talking about how the church is no different than the world today. He said this, quote, we find there is very little difference in ethical behavior between churchgoers and those who are not active religiously, non-believers. The levels of lying, cheating, and stealing are remarkable similar in both groups, end quote. And I would add immorality. I would add the divorce rate in the church is no different than the world. I would add materialism. See, these things are not what set us apart. And you know what James chapter 4 says? Anyone who loves the world more than they love God, God is opposed to that person. That's why in Romans chapter 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world. That's what it means by, by I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul says, look, I'm dead to the allurements of the world. I'm not going to conform to the world. And by the way, I think what he's saying here also is I'm dead to its opinions. I'm going to boast in Christ. I'm going to boast in his cross. I'm going to preach the message. And you know what? I'm going to get persecuted for it. But he says, I don't care because I'm dead to the world and what it thinks about me. Now, again, I'm not saying we're not to live in life. Obviously, we got to live this life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, we're to be in the world. We're to use the things of the world. He says, but we're not to take on the character of this world. And in Romans 12, he says, don't be conformed. Interesting word in the Greek. It means don't allow the world to shape you into its mold. Now, I know about molds because my daughters growing up, they would have, my wife had a jello mold. You ever seen those before? And they have different shapes of jello molds. Look at this one right here. I found it interesting. It's actually a Lego jello mold. Very colorful. They had one that looked like a brain. And I thought I better not show that one because you guys will never eat jello again. But what happens when you take a mold and you pour liquid jello into it and then you let it congeal? When you pour out the jello, it's the same shape as the what? The mold. And you see, that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 12. He's saying, don't allow the world to shape you into its mold. And that's what's happening is the church looks just like the mold of the world. We act like the world, we talk like the world, and therefore the church has no power. And so we have to be careful of that. We got to watch out 
that we're not just like the world. Well, there's one other thing that he mentions in our relationships, and that is our relationship to persecutors. Notice what he says in verse 12. And here, he's speaking of the Judaizers, how they avoided persecution. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Why? So that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. See, their motive was they wanted to avoid persecution at all costs. Now listen, as Christians, we're not to seek out persecution. Who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to be tortured and killed or verbally maligned? We don't seek that out, but here's the reality. When you and I live a godly life, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we can expect a modicum of persecution depending on what part of the world we live in. But notice Paul in contrast to the Judaizers, verse 17, from now on, Let no one cause trouble for me. That's the Judaizers. They dogged his steps. And then he says this, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. You see, their mark was circumcision. They wanted to make a showing in the flesh. You see, their mark was how many people can I get circumcised? Paul says, no. You know what my mark is? He says, I have the brand mark of Jesus Christ because as I preach the gospel, and you can read about this in the book of Acts, he was stoned and left for dead. 2 Corinthians 11 gives a litany of all his sufferings. Paul was beaten, and Paul had on his body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. Why? Because listen, when you take a stand for Christ in a spirit of love, you may get persecuted. Now, are you listening? Say amen. I struggle with this just like you, but let me tell you what the church is doing in America. We are silent. And you know why? We're bound by fear. This has shackled the American church. Most Christians will not speak up for Jesus. Why? Because they are scared of persecution. And I'm not saying I don't struggle with it, but listen, I'm not content staying there. And you see, the American church is shackled by fear. We claim that Jesus is the only way and he has the power to transform human lives. Why is it we're like the Antarctica, we're frozen over at the mouth? Now, I'm not saying we be obnoxious. I'm not saying that we don't wait for God's timing. But listen, ultimately, we cannot let persecution hinder us. And I know I struggle with it just like you. I read Voice of the Martyrs. And you know why I do that? not to inflict myself emotionally, but I want to challenge my own faith because I realize in America, we have a weak and anemic faith. I mean, a lot of Christians can't even push the gas pedal to get to church. I can't come to church, pastor. It's too hard to push the gas pedal. And we wonder why we don't have power in the American church. I was reading about a lady in Pakistan. They came up to her and they said, are you a Christian? She was working at her employment area. She said three times, yes, I'm a Christian. Now, she could have equivocated and said no, but she said yes. The man walked out, 20 minutes later came in. He had a bottle filled with acid. He threw it on her face, burned her. She had the marks of Jesus Christ. She tried to run out. They grabbed her, and they poured it down her throat. And I thought to myself, man, that's tough. And I say that not to shock you, but to say it is going on around the world. In fact, listen to this quote. It's a recent quote about persecution. Quote, the truth is persecution is more prevalent and geographically dispersed than any other time in history. Approximately 215 million Christians worldwide experience very high 
to extreme persecution, especially in the Middle East and the Far East. Newsweek reported in January 2018 that the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than any time in history, end quote. See, we're dealing with, that's why every, every Sunday we pray for this. Hebrews 13 says, don't forget those who are suffering. And so how do we respond to our persecutors? We're not to seek it out, but here's what we're to do. We're to be bold in our faith. We're to take a stand for Jesus Christ. We're not to be obnoxious, but we're not to compromise our convictions. And you know, when we do, we get it right. But we're also, the Bible says, to forgive our persecutors. Jesus said, pray for those who spitefully use you and do good. Paul says, don't seek out revenge. And I'll tell you what, that's hard. Because you know what? Someone can mess with me, but if someone messes with my wife or my children, that's a whole nother ballgame. And yet Christians overseas, some of their kids get martyred for the faith. And again, I'm not saying this for shock treatment, but you know what? We have to hear this because Jesus warned us that persecution will come. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, great is their reward in heaven. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes among you as though something strange were happening. It is a reality. But here's what I want to challenge you and myself to do. We need to be bolder in our faith for Jesus Christ. Some of you have not opened your mouth for Christ in years. And you know what? You have family members. You have coworkers. And you know, listen, on the day of judgment, not for hell, God's going to hold you and I accountable with what we did with the influences around us. That's why wherever I live, I have a conviction. My neighbors will hear the gospel at some point. And I've been praying for my neighbor, if I'm facing my house to the right, I've been praying for him six months here in the pulpit when I asked you to pray. The other day, I was walking, and his garage opens up. He comes out. He says, hey, can you give me the number of the guy you use for your gutter? Because I told him a couple days before he needed a gutter, because his water was coming over into my side. And so I felt the Spirit say, Mike, now's your time. So I shared the gospel with him. See, God gives us opportunities. I have to take a step of faith just like you. But listen, God wants us to be bold in our faith. And so, what have we learned this morning about our relationship? Paul talks about our relationship to non-believers. We're to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. He talks about our relationship to false teachers. He says we're to be aware of them. We're to stay away from them. We're to know the truth. He talks about our relationship to the world. Paul says, I'm crucified to the world, and the world's crucified to me. You and I are to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And finally, he talks about our relationship to persecutors, how he bears in his body the brand marks of Jesus Christ. And then he ends the epistle with this. He says, the grace. Isn't it interesting he ends with grace? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why does he end the letter with grace? Because the Judaizers were talking about law. And listen, grace is God's unmerited favor. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. God gives it to you as a free gift. You simply have to receive the gift of grace. And so Galatians overall has taught us that salvation is by what? Faith what? Alone. You got to use that word alone because that's what sparked the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. It wasn't faith. It was faith alone. Good works are not a requirement for salvation, but they are a result of salvation. And anyone, according to Galatians, who doesn't preach the proper gospel is preaching a false gospel. And so my encouragement to you is know the gospel yourself 
and then be able to articulate it to someone else. 